Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Emmy Vadness, co-host with Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring how humans mirror the cosmos. My guest is Eddie Billamoria, who is a consultant engineer and has been project manager and head of design for major projects such as the Channel Tunnel. He is a board member and trustee of the Scientific and Medical Network and has been a student of the perennial philosophy for over a half a century. He is author of Mirages in Western Science, Resolved by Occult Science, The Snake and the Rope, and his latest four-volume work, Unfolding Consciousness, Exploring the Living Universe and Intelligent Powers in Nature and Humans, for which he has been interviewed two previous times on the first two volumes on New Thinking Aloud, and I'll link to those interviews in the upper right corner of your screen. Today, we'll be exploring Volume 3, Gazing Through the Telescope, Man is the Measure of All Things. Eddie is located in Godalming, which is south of London. Now, I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Eddie. It is such a pleasure to have you back with us on New Thinking Aloud today. Thank you so much, Emmy. It's always a pleasure and an honor. And I never take these invitations for granted. So I'm very, very privileged to be talking to you again. This is our third interview, of course. Yes. If you want me just to summarize the first two interviews the, on volume one, where I was setting out the triumphs, and I mean the triumphs of science, but also pointing out its limitations and its limitations are it does not address our deeper yearnings, our spiritual understanding of ourselves and the universe. And that deficit is made up splendidly by the, the mystery teachings, the ancient teachings, the eternal teachings of all ages. And then in volume two, I use those ancient teachings along with enlightened science to, um, have a sort of microscopic in-depth understanding of the human being obviously not just the physical human being but the subtle bodies his consciousness his spiritual nature and in the third volume we're talking about uh, today i situate the human being in the wider cosmic picture so from having viewed through the microscope we're now gazing out through the telescope into the wider picture, seeing the human being as a mirror of cosmos, so to speak. How are humans a mirror of the cosmos when it seems that we are in here and the universe of the cosmos is out there? Yes, um, the cosmos displays, like we do, the, the archetypal or intellectual, um, the, the material, uh, and the in-between, the soul and spirit. So if we look behind outer appearances and visible structures and examine the 
principles and potentialities and the tendencies in the outer form, we can always discern a remarkable similarity between the functions and modes of expression of man, the microcosm, and cosmos, the macrocosm. It might help if I just draw an analogy between, for example, cosmic birth and human birth, if I can put it that way. Now, obviously, in a physical sense, there is no analogy as such. But let's think of first the human being. There is the terrestrial embryo, which contains in it the seed of the future man. And of course, by man, I don't mean male gender. I mean the thinking entity man. Man means male and female, of course. I think we agreed on that. So the human being uh, is given birth to by virtue of the seed, and all the potentiality of the future man is in the seed, like the oak trees and the acorn. Cosmically, we have the mathematical point uh, referred to by Leibniz, which contains the whole universe, which is about to be. In the human being, we have the amniotic fluid, which uh, exudes from the embryo. And in cosmos, we have the uh, what's known as the vis vitae, the, um, the essential fluid of the solar system exuding from the sun in our solar system, referred to uh, on the higher planes as akasha. Let's just move on. In the human being, we have obviously the, um, the chorion, or it's known as the, the globular object called the blastodermic vesicle. In other words, the outer layers of the membrane which go to form the physical man. And in cosmos, we find the outer crust of every sidereal body or solar system of our earth and every animal and being on it. So we see correspondences as above, so, so below, between the coming into being of man and the coming into being of cosmos and how one mirrors the other. All the forces and powers that went into the cosmos have also gone into the human being. So for the human being or anything humans create on earth, we have vision, we have planning, and we have the activity. So if you want to design a new aeroplane, you have to have a vision of it. You have to have a management structure to put that vision into practice, but then you need tools and techniques to actuate that vision in terms of a product. The cosmos was a thought in deity, as the great Schiller, who Beethoven immortalized, Schiller said, the universe is a thought of deity. And since that thought has overflowed into 
well, when something overflows, it flows downwards. It is the task of every thinking person to try and rediscover the original idea. So everything starts with thought, whether it's the human being or the cosmos or anything we do on Earth. And the Kabbalah uh, shows that correspondence between the macrocosm and the microcosm very beautifully. It seems that our consciousness, which sometimes is referred to as our spirit or spirituality, links what we perceive as these two separate entities, our inner self and the, the outer self. Are you saying that our consciousness is the bridge that links the inner with the outer? Are, are you saying that? Yes, it is. Uh, it, it is in that sense, that flow of current, if you like, that bridges the inner and the outer, and inner and outer are relative terms, of course. Yeah. Well, you mentioned thought, so that makes me think of consciousness. Oh, most certainly. Not uh, what, um, the, what the majority of neuroscientists think, uh, what is generated by the brain. Primordial thought. That encompasses what some may refer to as the multiverses or the cosmos with a K. Yes, the, the multiverse, the multiverse is the closest that physical cosmology has come to understanding cosmos with a K. Well, cosmos with a C is our solar system. And cosmos with a K is all the infinite other solar systems, other galaxies, other schemes, other planetary systems. And it might sound a bit arrogant to talk of them when we <laughs> don't even know enough about ourselves. But if we hold on to the principle of as above, so below, we can see the same principles operating right throughout the whole realm, even though the details, of course, vary enormously. Now, physical cosmology has come up with the multiverse, multiverse, which, I, as I said, is the closest approach and a pretty close approach to cosmos with a K in the, the biggest possible cosmos, not just our solar system. And this has come about through quantum physics and particle physics where scientists have been intrigued that um, the physical constants in our universe seem to be so finely adjusted that even a small change in those physical constants would either mean a complete annihilation of our universe or a homogeneous mass. Also, the um dark matter and dark energy, which is not just normal matter and energy as we understand it, all seem to point in, in the direction of other universes where the physical constants are different from what they may be in our universe. So the multi-universe is a very promising um, avenue of exploration. Obviously, there is no experimental evidence, but the last paper that Stephen Hawking wrote with uh, his colleague Herzog 
was mathematical demonstration of the multiverse. Yes, and you even mention in your book how I believe it was Stephen Hawking and Einstein have written about how they would like to understand, even though they're very scientifically and physically oriented, they want to understand the mind of God. Yeah, yes. As they would like to see the mind of God and understand it, I think it's not as arrogant as it sounds, really. I mean, I think they are sincerely trying to understand why it happened. It's all very well talking here for Big Bang, but Big Bangs don't bang themselves. So <laughs> what was the thought behind it? And another strong argument for the multiverse is, um, okay, we might have had a Big Bang, but there might have been other Big Bangs in other universes. Why is ours the only one? Hmm. So when Einstein, for example, said, I want to understand God's thoughts, all the other, all the rest are details, I think he was sincerely trying to strive at the ultimate purpose and meaning behind what we see around us. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, if I may address Stephen Hawking and less so Einstein, less so Einstein, you will not find it just through intellect. You have to transcend intellect. Intellect is invaluable, but it only, as Schrodinger said, intellect will only take you to a certain level and then you drop off the precipice. Intellect is a stepping stone. You have to transcend intellect if you want to know God's thoughts. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. How have you found to transcend intellect? Oh, my goodness. Firstly, by realizing the sheer limits and limitations of intellect, I wouldn't claim to, you know, to say I've transcended intellect, but I can certainly put my hand on my heart and say I'm deeply aware of the need to do that. And one does it in various ways. Schrodinger talked very eloquently in... Uh, what is life with mind and matter uh, and an autobiographical sketch by none other than Sir Roger Penrose, who recently got the Nobel Prize. And Schrodinger says that our scientific method of inquiry is so linear, we've got to think in pictures. Now, again, I cannot stress one is not saying one is superior to the other. Everything has its place. But if you only think linearly, you don't get the whole picture. If you think in pictures, you get the picture, which is the three volumes. I've got so many flow diagrams because a flow diagram shows the flow, the process, the picture. So one way um, of transcending intellect is to think in pictures. The other way really is through poetry, music, mystical verse. Uh, that which points to something beyond and above mind. So, for example, Shelley's wonderful saying about the human being that life, like a dome of many-colored glass, 
stains the white radiance of eternity. Now, intellectually, we can think of a prism that splits white light into colors. If we transcend that purely intellectual scientific analogy, we think uh, of ourselves, not just our brains, our personalities like a prism, many colored glass, that refracts the white radiance of eternity. In other words, our conditioning, our prejudices, our opinions, our I like this and I don't like that and all of that acts like a refractive um, index that stains and skews the light of eternity. So poetry, literature, music points to that which cannot be expressed in words. Paul Brunton put it so beautifully, Beethoven's music is charged with thought. You can't write out the thought, but when you listen to it, it is charged with thought. I mean, you can try mouthing and verbalizing the thought, if you like. But there is thought that goes beyond intellect, that goes beyond verbalization. You've mentioned light and music, which makes me think of vibration and energy. How do vibration, light and energy help to help us to understand the connection between us and the cosmos? Well, it's all the same thing. If you think physically of E equals MC squared, raise that to the metaphysical plane, it is different aspects of one thing. So the in E equals MC squared, the M matter, it is not energy expressing in matter. This is so important. It is not energy expressing in matter. It is energy expressing as matter. So matter is congealed energy. Uh, Sir James Jeans used the word crystallized energy, all of these, frozen energy, all of that. So energy, intelligence and light are really the vibrational aspects of one process for which we give different names depending on what we're discussing. And one has to bring in, Emmy, from my point of view, truth and love, because without that, all is lost. And love is a, a sort of the finest vibration at different levels, of course. And it is the radiation of love, which is real intelligence. I can give it another name. But real intelligence comes from real love. If you really love a person or the subject you are researching, be it light or gravity or whatever, you will imbue it with intelligence. And there is that radiation of intelligence from love of what you're investigating. And then there is no separation between you and the object. There is a participation. So in volume three, I've 
attempted to show why I call consciousness the primary element, because you can't break it down anymore. Everything starts from there. And we're, what we're talking about is different phases of consciousness expressing as different kinds of matter or substance. You also mentioned that to understand these concepts, of course, we, you know, we're having a conversation and it's helpful to discuss these topics. How do symbols help with representations of ourselves and the cosmos? This links perfectly to your uh, previous question is how, how do we transcend intellect through symbols? Because what is a symbol? It is. Why is it so important? Because ordinary language is wedded to a linear intellectual mode of thought which we need to convey precise information so in order to tell someone how to make a, a jet engine we don't use symbols please <laughs> you use precise information you know you have the compressor the combustion chamber the turbines and everything else that goes with it but to convey deep truths and esoteric meaning, why is it that the great sages have always resorted to parable, to metaphor, to allegory, and especially to symbols? Because symbols can be taken at various levels. So you can say a symbol is in a sense a recorded parable, and a parable is a spoken symbol. And some symbols are universal and beautiful in evoking an understanding of ourselves and of all nature like the lotus flower like the inverted tree the tree with its roots in the heaven the tree with its roots in the heaven and branches on earth symbolizing that all things have their origin in spirit and evolution proceeds from the top down and not bottom up as taught in conventional Darwinism. So there is a materialization of form until we reach the ultimate debasement or the ultimate physical. Mm -hmm. The lotus is another wonderful symbol, of course. So symbols, in one word, unlock hidden meanings and a symbol is not the same as an icon an icon has a fixed meaning like a traffic light green means go red means stop amber means a bit of ambiguity <laughs> you can put your foot down or stop <laughs> but anyway it's one of two things but an icon has generally a fixed meaning but an icon can be deeply significant to the to the individual but the symbol does not have a fixed meaning it depends on your relation with it yes and symbols can have universal meaning and depending on the context might also have its own unique meaning yes definitely and the tarot cards have wonderful symbols which are worthy of uh, a lot of contemplation yes you highlight three tarot decks in your book. Can you describe yeah. why those are so significant in what we're talking about today? Sure. 
The, the third one is three figures rising from a sepulchre. That links back to volume two, where I'm talking about the distinction between the individuality, the immortal, and the personality, the mortal. The individuality, like the butterfly, released from the, the caterpillar of the mortal self. So that symbol shows three figures rising from a sepulchre, a tomb. And those three figures are Atma Buddhi Manas, or the, the divine self, the intuition, and the higher mind, which are the known as the monad, if you like, uh, rising from the tomb of the physical self, the sepulchre, at death. The second card, I believe, is called the lovers. And now that is just about the most important symbol, I think, in my opinion, for IHY. It shows a youth flanked by two beautiful maidens. And both of those maidens love him. How nice to be loved by two maidens, not just one. One maiden is called virtue. The other one is called vice. Now, the youth must choose. You can't have it both ways. <laughs> if you choose virtue, wonderful things will happen. If you choose vice, uh, the arrow of Cupid will lance you. So what does this symbolize? I mean, it's easy to get caught up in the, uh, in the beautiful uh, pictures. It symbolizes that in terms of Ian McGilchrist's wonderful book, The Divided Brain and the, uh, the, uh, the Search for Meaning, the excessive emphasis on left brain thinking at the expense of the right brain has skewed our whole philosophy and approach to life. Nothing wrong with the left brain, but you give it such emphasis at the expense of the right brain causes the imbalances we see. More significantly, the two, you, the two maidens symbolize the deepest teaching of occult science on the higher mind and the lower mind. In other words, if we always aspire to our higher natures, the higher mind, all will be well. If we get attached to our desire-driven mind, our wants, me, 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 I want this, I want that, forget everyone else, then we create problems for ourselves. So the youth must choose whether to have the, the virtue maiden or the vice maiden. And bear in mind, both love him. And that's the, the problem. <laughs> they both love him. you got to say sorry to one. I'll have you. But that does not mean we are discarding and ca uh, castigating the, the lower self. The lower self in Ian McGilchrist's terms is the emissary. It's the servant of the higher. So, and the first uh, card, since you asked me, shows a hermit leaning on a staff, carrying a lamp that's concealed within his cloak. And of course, the hermit is the wisdom seeker. The staff is knowledge which provides his enduring support. 
and the lamp, of course, is Atma, the Divine Self, whose light is dimmed through all our various bodies, physical, astral, mind, and all the rest of it. Mm -hmm. But it also uh, um, indicates that the light has got to be protected because the, the sacred wisdom cannot just be opened up and exposed to the fury of those who would trample on it. Mm -hmm. The other symbols I've chosen, of course, the, the labyrinth, which is almost self-explanatory, and the forest. For those who may want a little more explanation on the labyrinth, can you expound on that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, one f immediately thinks of the, the labyrinth in, uh, in Knossos, in Crete. The, there are two kinds of labyrinth, a multicursal and unicursal. A multicursal labyrinth, for example, the, the maze in Hampton Court Palace in England, multicursal means there are several paths you can take and you can get easily lost. You may choose the right path to the center, but it's by no means certain that you will. Unicursal labyrinth you find in the floor of Chartres Cathedral in France. You meander round and round and round, but you will get to the center. So in the Cretan labyrinth, of course, uh, there is the wonderful story and myth here is so valuable again myth gets us beyond the intellectual mind the the well-known story but it's worth dwelling on it the minotaur half man half beast man with the head of a bull in other words the primitive man who is slave to his obstinacy his warlike bull-like um, anger, he's behaving like a bull, he's uncontrolled. Now, Theseus, uh, how does he get into the labyrinth? He unrolls a ball of string, and the ball of string is held by Princess Ariadne, who falls in love with the youth. And after slaying the Minotaur, he follows the string out and unites with Ariadne. What's the symbol? Uh, Theseus symbolizes the, the human soul who has to slay his lower nature. But in order to do that, he needs some help. He needs the mind principle the, that connects him, the string, that connects him to the spiritual soul symbolized by Princess Ariadne. And we always find that the spiritual nature is always feminine. So, which is beautiful. In Dante's Divine Comedy, uh, Dante is taken to the first level by the spirit of Virgil, but then to the next level by Beatrice, the lady who loved. So the um, the labyrinth is really a symbol of life. We enter life, which is a labyrinth, mm -hmm. and we have to find our way through it using our intellectual mind, 
the ball of string, the higher mind connecting to our spiritual source. Another symbol that you describe is looking to the cosmos, the configurations of the stars, the planets in astrology as a way for an individual to also realize this connection and understand themselves. I'll happily talk about astrology for quite a while. May I? Please. No, no I'll be brief. Yeah. yeah, firstly, astrology is sneered by materialistic science, of course. One thinks of Nobel laureate Stephen Weinberg, who in his book, uh, Dreams of a Final Cosmos, uh, Dreams of a Final Theory, he says, gone are the days when we would celebrate the glory of the heavens with David in the great uh, oratorios by Handel and Bach, because we now know, we now know <laughs> that these stars are nothing but, nothing but glowing spheres of gas where the inward collapse of particles from gravitational collapse is supported by the heat generated by thermonuclear processes in the core of the star. Nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But then, so the stars, Weinberg goes on to say, tell us nothing more than the stones on the ground around you. Forget sacred and God and all that stuff. When Monteverdi was invited by Galileo to look through his telescope, of course he saw, saw glowing spheres of gas. He saw further. He wrote his beautiful Vespers. When the great astronomer and musician Sir William Herstrel, who discovered Uranus, invited Haydn, the great Joseph Haydn, to look through his telescope in Slough, in in um, in England, Haydn wrote the creation. These works have stood the test of centuries. So in other words, the stars and planets are not just the physical bodies, there is the indwelling spirit and consciousness. And what you see entirely depends on the sensitivity of your perception, the refinements of your um, instruments of consciousness. So astrology is a great and noble science on the origin, destiny, purpose of the planetary bodies and their indwelling consciousness and also the relationship of the cosmos to man. One can think of the, um, in antiquity, the great Alexandrian Egyptian uh, astrologer, mathematician, musician, um, Claudius Ptolemy. However much science may sneer, the greatest men of science have honored astrology. Kepler, Sir Isaac Newton, um, in the uh, alchemical realm, Flamsted, Ashmole, and the great Rosicrucian uh, masters. In uh, India in the 18th century, Maharaja Jai Singh created a wonderful open-air observatory 
where students were taught the science of astronomy and astrology. But let's be clear, one cannot explain astrology in terms of physical astronomy. The two paradigms are different. You know, it, one might as well try and explain mind and consciousness and feeling purely in terms of the mechanical, the, the mechanics of the human body. The two are different. And any attempt to try and find a astronomical explanation for astronomy is just sort of really talking nonsense or trying uh, the impossible. Because physical astronomy is to do with the objective, the visible, and physical universe. That's great. Astrology does not deal with that. It does not deal with quantitative measurements. It deals with relationships, with influences. So the two are entirely different. So what does the horoscope indicate? It's really a symbolic pattern of our whole being, our environment, and our relation to the environment. So it is a cipher, it's like a cipher when correctly interpreted, records both the transcendent and the physical energies that we have to use. Mm -hmm. But it's a real mistake to say, for example, that because I have Jupiter or Saturn or Venus in a certain part of my horoscope, or I've got Libra or Scorpio or Pisces, because of them I'm like this. That's far too naive. If you have a high fever, your thermometer will record it. The mercury in the thermometer did not cause your fever. A barometer records the weather patterns, the, the change in pressure. The barometer did not cause storms and climate crisis. So the, 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 the planets don't cause things to happen, but they are indicators, they are pointers. And in the Indian astrological system, what I find one of the most useful pointers is what's known as Sadisati, which is the transit of Saturn over the natal horoscope, over three signs, the one before the ascendant and the two after. And that indicates it is only an indication of what challenges lie ahead but also what achievements and potentialities you can engage with entirely depending on your karma but i cannot emphasize too strongly that in astrology we have to step outside and beyond the vis the visible world and the objective world and please keep away from newspaper astrology and there are no, there is no shortage of charlatans um, predicting your future and your love life. Charlatans say nothing about the beauty of the subject. Charlatans only tell you that they are charlatans. <laughs> That's all. They're, charlatans point a finger at themselves. The true person points a finger at the nobility of the subject. And I would say, I mean, true astrologers are very few and far between because you have to be a 
fully realized human being. Mm-hmm. But I find it to be of great use, not for prediction and prognostication, but as a, one of the keys to self-understanding and also uh, the bearing on health. They are definitely uh, certain uh, pointers to where potential weaknesses and strengths may lie. So as a very simplistic, very simplistic example, if you've got an opposition between Saturn and Mars with no resolution of that opposition, there is a tension between the outgoing impulsive nature of the Martian energy and the breaking limitation um, nature of Saturn. So with that opposition, you could suggest to a person that unless you find ways of resolving that tension, there will be a heck of a lot of frustration in your life because you are being pulled and you are being braked. There's a, there's no resolution of those energies. That's very simplistic, of course. So that's how one gains self-knowledge. Whether it's astrology or symbols or anything else, one thinks of William Blake's beautiful saying, and this is again where the mystical poet reaches much further than the intellectual mind, that if the doors of perception were cleansed, everything would appear as as they are. So if we look at the planets through a materialistic lens, you will just see glowing gas, gravity and thermonuclear. If you look at the human being just as blood, bone and flesh, you will just see blood, bone and flesh. Forget the consciousness. Yeah, exactly. But we've imprisoned ourselves in narrow concepts, so we only see things through a narrow chink. It's a very insightful explanation of astrology, and I think that a person looking at their own natal chart can help them to understand themselves and understand the yes. the strengths they have, the challenges they have, and how to be with and work with those energies. I completely agree with you and go along with that, yes. Yeah. And by understanding yourself, you can chart your own destiny rather than using the natal chart to predict what's going to happen next sort of thing, in which case you're being reactive rather than proactive. Essentially, we're talking about the hermetic axiom here, as above, so below. We are, and in Volume 1, I've included a few translations of the Hermetic Axiom, including none other than by the great Isaac Newton, and a very detailed translation of the Hermetic Axiom. It's not just, well, as above, so below is the one sentence, uh, as below, so above, but it also makes the point that everything is needed in the divine economy but not everything is not equally important. So, you know, if you're constructing a house, obviously the roof walls and the foundation are important, but if it's raining and thundering outside, if you have even one roof tile missing, you will have a flood inside. So 
in this simplistic example, everything is greater, but nothing is greater in the divine economy. So paradox is central. So one way to transcend intellect, to go back to your question, is paradox. And this is where the Zen teaching on uh, koan, their koans, is so valuable. Intellectually, it's nonsense to say, imagine the sound of one hand clapping. Intellectually. But if we transcend that, we can gain our own insight into that koan. What was your original face before you were born? Well, obviously, intellectually, I didn't have a face before I was born. But that's not the point. Get beyond that. You've mentioned the right and the left brain. You've mentioned how important love is. How is the heart, uh, as you suggest in your book, the primary seat of consciousness, uh, knowing that it, that the, the brain and the intellect is also important as well? That's a very, very important topic. Um, modern science is completely obsessed with the brain as though we're nothing but neurons walking on legs. But, but <laughs> neurocardiology is a burgeoning subject <clears throat> um, where it is being gradually recognized and accepted that um, the heart as a seat of consciousness has, in clinical terms, an electrical field a magnetic field and an electromagnetic field many, many orders of magnitude higher than the brain. Now, the Heart Math Institute in the USA is a wonderful institute that has researched the various emotional and environmental factors that impact on the heart. But in terms of your question, regard the heart as the um, radio station which sends out invisible waves, those invisible waves are converted to what you can see and hear on your television set. So the brain is in the mansion, the beautiful mansion we call the human body. The brain is the door that looks outward to the outer and objective world. But the mansion also has many, many inner doors through which many secret currents flow. The heart provides the primary impulse, which the brain then puts in space and time, what we call thought. And there are wonderful correlations between the brain centers and the heart centers that are, are shown in, in volume three. The more science recognizes the importance of the heart, not just as an organ of feeling, but for them it's only a pump. Well, for most scientists, obviously not all. Think of our language. Just language says everything. We refer to our loved one as a sweetheart, not a sweet brain. We learn music by heart. We don't learn music by brain. What happens when you're jilted? Are you brain broken or are you heart broken? So come on, what is that telling us? Our deep primary center of consciousness is the heart. Of course, all organs 
our consciousness centers. But the three primary ones are the heart, the brain, and the generative system. Mm-hmm. Heart transplants uh, have shown that in some cases the recipient takes on the characteristics of the donor heart. There was a, um, a significant case of a young girl of six or seven who was given the heart from a murdered girl, a murdered girl of roughly that age, and she had such specific visions of the person who murdered the donor that uh, the psychiatrist she was uh, taking to was able to provide enough specific details to find the uh, the criminal. People take on the characteristics like smoking or alcoholism uh, when they get a heart transplant. They were never smokers or alcoholics. I also am very disturbed about how the brain, yes, and the heart are affected by the sea of electromagnetic waves we now live in. 5G, 4G before, microwaves. I cannot help thinking that it has a pretty insidious effect depending on our personal sensitivity. Of course I've got no hard data to uh, corroborate that but it it is my gut feeling and my heart feeling (laughs) that if we emanate brain waves and heart waves well surely the, the microwaves around must affect us in some insidious sort of way. Do you have any suggestions of what we can do to be in alignment with our heart given these outer and inner influences? Well, outwardly, there are various devices that purport to cancel or um, mitigate um, harmful radiations. One can wear crystals and crystals are well known for healing and protection, like quartz, or again, depending on one's astrological sign, topaz, for example, for a margin influence. But in order to connect, uh, the best approach is an attitude of harmlessness, where we see the heart and, uh, and the inner being in every creature, which is easy to say, of course. But to engage one's feeling nature while never um, annihilating one's uh, intellectual nature, but always recognizing that the seat of all we do should come from the heart. So there's an old saying, as a man thinks with his heart, so he is. So I have rephrased that as... Feel with the brain, think with the heart. Yeah, like the yin and the yang kind of. Yeah, that's right. Flipping it so that you can have uh, an element of each and the other. But I'm just amazed how this obsession with the brain has swept modern science. And uh, that is now going to be the search for the holy grail of consciousness. Well, good luck to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're we're more than the brain for sure. Sometimes I wonder if it's because we have so many sensory systems. You know, we can see, smell, hear, and taste in the head, 
and we look out through our eyes in this in this upper region of our bodies as well. Mm. But yes, I agree with you that the heart is incredibly important. And for our conversation today, I wore my rose rose quartz necklace as a symbol. That's uh, yeah, that's very synchronistic, if I can put it that way. <laughs> that you've worn just the uh, the rose crystal, yeah. In addition to what we talked about previously, that E equals MC squared, having our perceived physical bodies is really an emanation of energy. You share in your book that there's research that shows that a photograph of somebody with their eyes can emit a form of frequency. And when they depart seemingly from this earth realm, that that frequency uh, decreases. That's so significant, Emmy. And um, this was an article that appeared, I think, in 1930 or 1933, certainly one of those dates, in the well-known National Journal, where an inventor invented a device that could detect what he called Z-waves from a photograph of a person. Now that device was um, checked and corroborated and authenticated by E. Shrapnel Smith, who was one of England's leading chemists. And what it did, it detected Z waves, for want of a better word, light waves from the photograph of a person. Now, the interesting point is this, when the person died, the Z waves from the photograph ceased and distance has nothing to do with it. Now, if that sounds extraordinary, it isn't because the inventor said there was nothing psychical or occult about it. The device was an application of laws of magnetism, electricity, static electricity and current electricity. Now, why is it that science hasn't taken that further? Because there seems to be a fear. And not only him, there was an Italian um, scientist who um, developed similar instruments and uh, came to similar conclusions. Not only that, but this one is significant. But why hasn't science taken this further? Well, for the same reason that it took centuries and centuries for science even to admit that the great Isaac Newton was a mystic and a deeply religious human being. They only came out when his old chemical papers were auctioned. Science is now so stuck in this materialistic box that to talk of waves coming from the eyes would open for them a can of worms. But we all know Every child knows the cold look and the loving look from a parent's eyes. We don't need science to corroborate this. It is a human experience. Rupert Sheldrake, great scientist, and in my opinion, one of the very few highly enlightened scientists, has written this wonderful book, The Sense of Being Stared At. So by staring at someone, uh, they, they look round at you. 
And believe you me, I've tried this many times because quickly I go round my local lake and fishermen are fishing and I stand behind one of them and watch them fishing and they turn around and look at me and I'm directly behind them, I promise you. It's a common experience, but it's good that it can be scientifically corroborated. But that being the case, the higher wisdom should dictate to one that if there is an emanation from the human eye, whenever a, a criminal is caught and convicted, we see a picture of him in the national newspapers with large staring eyes. Well, those eyes are emanating a foul radiation from a criminal. So if we knew a bit more about the human eye, not just like a camera, we would not have the eyes of criminals uh, in the national newspapers. We'd, we would have beautiful eyes. We'd have eyes of philanthropists, of artists, you know, of great scientists, anything like that. So this is the way the higher wisdom could be used and is not being used. Well, and I would imagine that the eye energy would correlate with the heart energy or even the yes. whole aura of the, of the being. Most certainly, the windows of the soul. That expression is not for good, without good reason. Well, and that's why I'm so grateful to talk with you today, because we get to raise the awareness around these topics. And you being an engineer, which most people consider engineers to be working with the physical, quote, physical world, you're highlighting and we're highlighting today how it's really a continuum of really uh, energy or frequency. Well put, uh, Emmy. It is a continuum, yes. And, well, no one could have put it better. It, it is a continuum. And everything mirrors the laws of nature at whatever level. Like a holograph. Yes, or a fractal. Yeah, a hologram. Yeah. The evolution of the human consciousness and cosmos seems to be a main focus of theosophy, of which you have a significant background in. Is there anything you want to share uh, on that topic? Evolution, the word evolution is evolvere, to turn outwards. So evolution in the broader sense is the release of spirit from matter. Of course, spirit and matter are one, but there is a release of the inner principle from the outer. There is also involution, which is the confining of spirit in matter, so-called matter. Cosmos evolves as human beings evolve. There is, regarding cosmos, the old saying, the Chaldean saying, the older wheels rotate downwards and upwards. The older wheels rotate downwards and upwards. So it refers to the evolution of countless globes, world systems, that just like the human being have shed their outer vehicles and have developed new forms from the, the essence of what was left behind. Now, this is nonsense to NASA and astronomy, you know, our world is the only world, all the others are, well, where's the life? But 
if we see that there is nothing but consciousness expressing in different forms, I find it totally illogical even to suggest that our world is the only world. Why should there not be other worlds or globes inhabiting different life forms that have run their course and have given birth to new globes and universes like human beings do? So the older wheels, globes, rotate downwards and upwards. The human being evolution uh, works on the not only the physical Darwinian, of course, but also the psychic and the and the spiritual realms. And evolution here means really not consciousness isn't evolving, so to speak, but it is expressing through vehicles of increasing refinement and complexity to to best express and better express its limitless potential. So in the mineral kingdom, um, consciousness has a limited expression. In the vegetable, the animal and human kingdom, it has increasing degrees of self-expression. The other point with evolution is um, what scientists hate to be told is that the human being is not just two or three hundred thousand years old, a modern human being, but it is centuries old, as we find in the Vedic doctrine, as we found in the wonderful researches of Cremor uh, and Warner and Cremor uh, and Thompson. It is a thorough anthropology and paleontology that have shown the antiquity of the human race. We've been evolving for a long time. <laughs> we have indeed, yes. But it's not a linear thing. It's a cyclical. It's a cyclical process. You've included mathematics in your book. Why did you feel that was important or how is that relevant to the inner and outer cosmos? Mathematics is vital. Besides being a, a beautiful subject, it points to the world as mind. Now, when I say world as mind, what I mean is this. Now, Einstein was amazed. How is it that a mathematical formula or equation, which is purely mental, how does that um, embody the physical universe? We can design now or um, a new aeroplane on a computer. Well, that's mathematics, if you like. Now, how can that be? M mathematics is a mind-based subject. How could it embody the physical world if the physical world were not mental in essence? You can only frame a physical house with physical scaffolding. You can't frame it with mental scaffolding. But if the world were not of the nature of mind, you couldn't use mathematics. So uh, mathematics is one of the most wonderful subjects when taught properly <laughs> that points to mind as the primary reality. And as Paul Brunton put it so beautifully, space is not just empty stuff in a box. And, you know, we must spatialize mind and mentalize space. So mathematics points 
to the mental quality of space and time. Do you have a favorite equation that addresses <laughs> what we're talking about today or anything come in mind for you that you want to share with the audience about mathematics? A favorite equation, my goodness. I'm not going to say e equals mc squared. <laughs> <laughs> that would be one of them. That's so cliched, but it is a, a wonderful equation. One of my favorite equations would be uh, Schrodinger's equation that shows the, 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 the probabilities, the probability wave that until it is observed stays as a wave of probabilities and only observation will convert it into a particle, so to speak. But I can't think of a favorite equation just at the moment. It'll, it might come to me. But just coming back, coming back to evolution, I mean, think of that lovely saying by Rumi, the great Persian Rumi. This is evolution. I died as a mineral and I became a plant. I died as a as a plant and I became an animal. I died as an animal and I became a human being. Where was I any less by dying? So um, the whole principle of life is death of the form. Mm. So that is evolution, the releasing of outward forms of, of um, threadbare, getting rid of our threadbare coat so that we can inhabit new material. Yeah, we are a, a projection of that spirit matter. Yes, indeed. And talking of mathematics, I have consistently found that Ian McGilchrist says this, and I found that physicists and mathematicians are far more amenable to the esoteric wisdom, whereas biologists and doctors are not. And that's very sad because they're still stuck in a mechanistic paradigm, whereas biologists and doctors dealing with life should be that much more amenable to a, a higher wisdom rather than just mechanistic uh, medical technology. Yeah. Well, there's more to, to know and learn beyond just a mechanistic viewpoint, right? Yeah. It's much more complex. Yeah. Why is it that any person of any religious or scientific persuasion seems to long for immortality? Because that is our very fundamental core being. And that longing for immortality is an inward recognition, unbeknown to the mind or the intellect, or known to the mind by some. It's an inward acknowledgement that every particle of matter, every atom, we, are at the core and the heart of that, there is spirit, deathless and immortal. And therefore, any person, any system, any society that denies that will have only a limited existence. Now, of course, that limited existence can unfortunately be at the expense of enormous suffering and control and manipulation. Think of North Korea, think of China, my goodness. But 
at the heart of every atom there is spirit deathless and immortal and we long for immortality because we are that and we inwardly recognize that we will never die now the transhumanists uh, that's a, that's another monstrous subject they want to be immortal now see the lack of logic there if as they proclaim we're nothing but neurons and mechanisms i've never known a mechanism that wants to be immortal why do they want to be immortal why did they freeze their bodies in liquid nitrogen hopefully to be resuscitated when the great god of science uh, enables that to happen what's in it why do they want to be immortal well they probably have a viewpoint that this perceived physical reality is all there is that's very true that is their perceived reality why do they want to continue is your question why continue that yeah there's a, a a spark in us that recognizes that we we will continue perhaps yeah we will continue and we will uh, enter a superhuman realms where we may perhaps help the human race to evolve further mhm mm i'm thinking of the bodhisattvas and the nirmanakayas and the great sages and saviors who sacrificed the um, the paradise of nirvana if i put it that way in order to take on uh, incarnation and help the human race to move forward you are helping us evolve today oh, thanks <laughs> a topic that's very popular at the moment is UFOs, UAPs, alien contact. Yes. And since we're talking about the inner and outer cosmos, are there any thoughts you have on that today? Outer body experiences, UFOs, there's another word for that, UAPs now. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. These are not pure rubbish. It is the individual saying in his or her own way that there is more to life than meets the eye. So the point is we see what we want to see um if i believe in flying saucers and i'm sensitive and there is uh, let's say an energetic configuration the the image making power of the mind will make that give that the form of a flying saucer but then you hear expressions like god was once an astronaut this is not complete rubbish it is saying that there are higher influences that have intervened have helped and are helping humanity to move forward but we close we close those higher influences in the imagery of our minds and give that higher influence god in as an astronaut So I think we will continue to see more UFOs and UAPs. And I have a a very close friend a math mathematician at work, a top mathematician, highly sensitive and 
Whenever CERN, the laboratory in um, in Geneva, France, when they turn up the voltage, he knows when that's happening because he perceives things. So it is not impossible that by playing with such high voltages, one is creating a window or a, a rent in the veil that separates one world from another world. Very well said, Eddie. Is there anything else you want to share today about humans as a mirror of the cosmos? To scientists, I would say two things, that you've investigated outer space, you want to go to Mars, you've been to the moon, that's fine, no problem. Now you must investigate the inner space, the space within the mind, because if you don't understand the mind, you blow yourselves up. So outer space and inner space are related. Then I would say to scientists, recalling the great Albert Schweitzer, there are three things necessary for human progress. Progress in knowledge and technology, progress in socialization, cohesion, most important progress in spirituality. And in fact, Schrodinger, in that book I showed you, said it is, he said, I'm very doubtful whether technology has helped human happiness recently. He's not referring to technology per se. Of course, we have sanitation, wonderful hospitals, but this explosion in technology has not really helped the human race because there's not been a commensurate explosion in spirituality. If there were, it would be wonderful. So that would be my sort of message to scientists. But to earnest spiritual seekers, I would say, look, you may make a lot of money on the stock exchange overnight or in the lottery or lose it, but you may make it. In the spiritual realm, every rung of the ladder you have to earn and deserve. There are no shortcuts. And if you think you can take psychedelic drugs to shortcut, you will soon learn that you can't. Mm -hmm. Someone told me by taking ayahuasca, you get a Buddha-like experience. So note the words Buddha-like. I don't deny that. I say, if you go to the Louvre in Paris, you can take the Mona Lisa, if you can get past security, and make the most wonderful photocopy. It will be a Mona Lisa-like picture. The Mona Lisa-like picture, you could probably sell for $10. The Mona Lisa per se is priceless. So a Buddha-like experience is not a Buddha experience. A Buddha experience is earned and deserved. So forget your shortcuts. You have to earn it. But it doesn't mean it's a hard slog and painful. I mean, there are ways of making yourself, as the saying goes, enlightenment prone. Feed your eyes and ears with wonderful food, great literature, great music. Cut out all the rubbish and junk we see around us. And the other thing I would say is the spiritual life doesn't mean going to a cave or mountain for two years. The spiritual life is the daily life of the normal householder with 
With its joys and its difficulties and its challenges, it is the normal daily life. That is the spiritual life. And I would say it, you don't serve God or man. I think this has been the great problem in the churches. You either serve God or you serve your wife or whatever. And that creates the enormous difficulties that we now hear about on the news in that enforced celibacy. And celibacy is for the very few. The normal course is the managed life of the householder. So by serving your fellow man, in whatever way, you are serving God. Because every person has the atmic spark. There isn't God there and you here serving God. The God spark is in you. The kingdom of heaven is in you. I mean, every sage says that. The great Beethoven, he said that I much prefer the empire of the mind. And I regard that as the highest attainment, physical and spiritual, to serve the empire of the mind. And if one can use a musical analogy, oh gosh, now there is this wokery and all of this gender warfare, all of that. If I can just read the Sanskrit very quickly, the Sanskrit says, Samkara Purusha Sarve Striya Sarva Meshvari. Translated, it means all men are expressions of Shiva and all women are expressions of Shakti. What it does, it unequivocally asserts the divine origin of mankind and indicates the divine nature of the relation between the sexes. So if we think of the orchestra as humanity, you have the brass and you have the strings and woodwind. If the brass were left to it, to themselves, the sound would have brutal power. It would have power and force. If you have just the strings, the sound would be a bit insipid. It would be lacking in fiber. Put the two together and you've got harmony. So I would say, forget wokery. The man provides the force and the power. It needs the woman for the strength and the endurance. So when you marry force and power with strength and endurance, you have the perfect marriage. The marriage with others, the inner marriage, the outer marriage, makes me think of the lover card again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Eddie, thank you so much for all that you've shared with us today and for helping all of us to explore our own consciousnesses more, to help us to become more enlightened prone. Thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Emmy. And as I said, it's been a, a wonderful privilege. 
and um, I really look forward to uh, connecting with you again whenever convenient, as you wish. Yes. And exploring uh, a few subjects in greater depth. We will definitely have more conversations on New Thinking Aloud, Eddie. There's so much more we can discuss around these topics. Most certainly. And for those of you listening or watching, thank you for being with us. You are the reason we are here. that in conjunction with White Crow Books, we've just launched the new Thinking Aloud Dialogues book imprint, and our first title is, Is There Life After Death?